Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Many more Latinos are running for office and winning, but they still make up less than 2% of all elected officials in the country. Plus, most food delivery workers in New York City are Latino. They're organizing to demand better wages and working conditions. And fans of Disney's animated musical Encanto are praising the film for its multiracial Latinx cast. That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, curious about CBD, This compound from the hemp plant won't get you high, but could it help decrease pain and anxiety? Two experts weigh in about the pros and cons of CBD. But first, joining me now, Julio Ricardo Varela, Interim Co-Executive Director of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. So glad to have you here. Also with me, Tibisai Zaya senior reporter at El Planeta in Boston. Hello, Tibisai. Hi, Kelly. I'm so glad to have both of you. I want to jump right into a number of political stories. You know, some of these keep popping up in different ways, but they all overlap, it seems to me. So first, there's a Gallup poll that shows that Latinos are showing little sign of shifting away from Democrats. And then there was another one by you, Julio, about uh, how Democrats' Hispanic voter bungling could really haunt them in 2022. And we're in 2022. Yeah. Um, And then it's the one that we just mentioned that despite growth, Hispanic representation, that's elected representation, is minuscule. So let's take the first two, Latinos showing little sign of shifting away from Democrats. That's a Gallup poll. How do you two respond to that? Believe it? Don't believe it? Yeah, I mean, it's Gallup. You know, the U.S. Latino population has traditionally leaned Democratic over the years. But there's also signs that, with the midterms, that this current administration has yet to deliver for the community. And I think the two or three factors that should be considered are the following. One, COVID, right, the pandemic. Very little is discussed about how much of an impact it has had on the Latino community in the United States. And and I think there is this feeling that with this administration that they haven't fully delivered when it comes to COVID, when it comes to economic relief, when it comes to essential workers. Number two, and I hate to bring this up and, you know, polling's like, well, it's not a top issue for Latinos, but it's an issue of the heart. There has been no movement on immigration reform. And there's a promise that was made by President Joe Biden, you know, you can go back and look at the videotapes about all these promises about ending Remain in Mexico and a more humane immigration system. And what are we what is still happening? We still have Remain in Mexico. We still have Trump policies like Title 42, which is the the policy that 
does not allow people from other countries to come in because of, you know, being a health issue during the pandemic. And I think that's being overlooked. Right. And then and then I'll just say the last point about this is you're starting to see Latinos across different swing states and different pockets questioning all that and challenging sort of what the Democrats have been saying. And I don't see a lot of enthusiasm so far for the midterms for Latinos mm. and Democrats. So that's mm. my prediction. Tim, aside, before you respond, let's take a listen to journalist Paula Ramos speaking on MSNBC. She wonders whether Democrats are losing the Latino vote. So we know, Tiffany, that the number one issue has always been the economy, right? And th that's the problem that Democrats are up against. It's a messaging problem. It's a storytelling problem. In this moment, jobs are up with Joe Biden, wages are up with Joe Biden, and unemployment's down. Yet that is not resonating with Latinos. So what Democrats are up against in 2022 and 2024 is a massive, not just a massive disinformation campaign being led by the GOP. It is their own internal messaging failure. Okay, Tibisai, weigh in. Yeah, so well, I think, you know, there is a tendency for Democrats to take the Latino vote for granted and assume that because the Latino population is growing, then they will permanently, you know, gain more and more control. And that's simply not true. The Latinos tend to act more like a swing state. For example, take the data from past elections that, that show that basically everywhere where there were large concentrations of Latinos, there were big swings compared to the previous election. So I think uh, the Republicans, they have to understand also that immigration plays a big role in trying to gain, gain the Latino vote. So something needs to happen there. Also, many analysts think that part of the success that Trump had with Latinos in the 2020 election had to do with the fact that his campaign was less focused on immigration, meaning economic factors were more important this time, and that uh, favored Trump. So we are such a diverse group. If you really want to uh, address Latinos, you have to understand the differences. You have to understand us culturally and politically, and that's conflicts. Right. And I... I was going to say, Callie, the swing state analogy I've been using forever, and and that has to do with investment, understanding, cultural nuances, knowing that a Northeast voter in a Puerto Rican community, say, in Boston, is you know is, is voting for different reasons than, say, a Mexican-American voter in, in San Antonio or on the, on the Texas-U.S. border. And Democrats still haven't gotten that message. If they don't take advantage of this in the next couple of cycles, it's going to get more problematic because Republicans, like I always say, only need to get 30 to 35 percent of U.S. Latinos to win nationally and locally in races. And that's all they got to do. They don't have to win 70 percent. They're just going to win about 30, 35. And they have enough of, a, of an effective strategy to, you know, say socialism, you know, the communists are taking over, uh, you know, the the radical left is going to take away your money, um, you know, all these things. It's very effective. Democrats, and I agree with Paola Ramos, who's a really good friend. She's amazing. Um, Democrats don't even know how to message Latinos. And that's a big, big problem. What you're going to see is not only lo loss of Democratic support, but loss of engaged voters who are young and are Latino. So that's that's a problem. That's a big problem. I want to just go back and underscore something that both of you said, which is about 
immigration, Julio, you referred to it as an issue of the heart, not necessarily a central issue. Tibisai, you made clear that, however, this is something that Latinx voters are looking at to see you know, how both parties are responding and the Democrats have not fulfilled their promise. So there's a test case of, of a sort in Texas where these three Texas state Senate candidates rejected endorsements and money from a conservative, I want everybody to get this right, a conservative Hispanic group because the conservative Hispanic group disagrees slightly from where former President Trump's stand is on immigration. This conservative group, the Libre Initiative, is saying, hey, we're conservatives, too, and we don't understand why you would reject our support. But these three Senate candidates were so have been so firm in rejecting this. This, to me, makes this a test case about where immigration may play as an issue. Do both of you agree? Yeah, the Libre Initiative has been around for a while, and the best way to describe it, I, I think it's sort of almost libertarian-ish. It's Koch, it's, it's Koch brothers funded, and the Koch brothers um, gave initial money to the Libre Initiative. They are very pro-pathway to citizenship. They are very pro, and they're very GOP, and they do want immigration reform, but they also are now the minority of the Republican Party. But, you know, they are not representing what the majority of the Republican Party right now is is saying, you know, the Republican Party is not even cooperating with Democrats on any form of immigration. Um, but I don't know about you, Tibisai, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree 100 percent. And first of all, I think uh, for me, it's hard to understand why, you know, a Latino group would align with a candidate who was basically attacking immigrants from the beginning. But I understand immigration is not the only factor, but immigration is important. And again, if you want the Latino vote, you really have to understand their needs. It's not, you know, one fits all. So Republicans, they have to cooperate if they really want the Latino vote. All right. Now, one last thing in this little group of stories. Nearly 75% growth in the number of Latino elected officials, but the result is it's less than 2% of all elected officials. Uh, Tibisai, you you respond, and then Julio. Yeah. So every time I hear about the political representation of Latinos, you know, there is this common complaint about low uh, turnout in elections. Uh, we have to remember, you know, a lot of Latinos are not eligible to vote in this country. That is true. But a lot of the work goes beyond the act of voting. I know there have been some recent efforts in Boston to promote participation of people who are uh, disengaged or feel, you know, their voice is ignored. Uh, folks at MIT have been working on a very interesting tool for public input. They are hosting small group conversations with people about the future of Boston. We need to understand everyone's needs everyone's culture so we can really engage them. This is how we gain more representation. We should be promoting more conversations about our lived experiences in the city. I will also mention the importance of building movements based on local grassroots activism. I think you've uh, raised something that needs to be said again, which is the population, as has been determined by the census, the fastest growing, the largest growing in the country are 
Latinos. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's different from the numbers of Latino voters. Now go ahead. Right. But I think there's a couple <laughs> of things um, to remind everyone. First of all, that population is incredibly young. I think the medium age, the median age is still in the mid-20s compared to the white population, which is definitely much older. So you have to understand that this community is finding its political voice now and discovering it now, and it's beginning to evolve, right? And we need to remind ourselves that there have been record turnouts in the last two presidential elections in the midterms for Latino voters, and that's the truth. Yes, it's still half the population of eligible voters, but it's growing. And I think what you're seeing is the beginning of all the predictions that are going to be happening in the next, you know, 10, 20 and 30 years. And yes, representation is still low, but it's just starting. And what what's interesting about that report that we need to remind ourselves is that this is not just happening in traditional places where there's large Latino populations. This is not a story about Miami or New York or Los Angeles. I mean, I, I, I think of a place like Western Massachusetts, right, where, mm. where there's always mm. been a strong Puerto Rican population. And they're finally, they're finally getting representation for the first time, I think, in the history of many of these cities where it used to be, you know, the white select persons or mayors. And now they're starting. Now you're starting to see that power beginning to translate into representation. So so the community needs to look at these victories as historic first. I mean, look at Rhode Island. You know, you have two Puerto Rican candidates, I believe, now running for governor. Yeah. I mean, this is this is amazing. Like, this is what's going to be happening. And it's happening in New England and it's happening in, you know, the Midwest and it's happening in the far west. And those numbers are going to go up. Callie, I have no doubt. Mm, I agree with you. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And I'm speaking with our Latinx roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futura Media Group and Tibisai Zaya of El Planeta. I want to jump into the story that uh, Marcella Garcia from The Globe, a uh, friend of the, a friend of friends. this show, has written about. And that's the card that has been under discussion for years uh, that would allow undocumented immigrant drivers to obtain a driver's license. It is right now either going to be voted out of committee and maybe get some serious consideration for the first time. There's been a lot of talk about it over the years, but it hasn't moved. And she posits it that it it uh, it's a simple card that drives conservatives crazy. And that is because these people are undocumented, but they're getting driver's licenses. But the reason is, and now cops are on board with this, is that if you do that, then you have people on the road who have had to pass a driver's license test instead of having people on the road with no driver's license test driving anyway because they're going to try to go to work. The fact that we're we're in Massachusetts and it's 2022 and this hasn't happened is just so ridiculous. But I think it also gets to the point of we, if you want to connect political representation or lack of it in the Massachusetts perspective and in the Latino community, again, I don't think you have a lot of voices on Beacon Hill who are leading this. Like, you need to have more visibility. And and this has been around for a while. I mean, you know, Marcela, who we all love, you know, this is, you know, has actual police chiefs in this story saying, yeah, like, this is a good idea. I sit here and I'm like, think about this. Like, I really want to break it down. Let's put aside status for a second and let's really look at this logically as, you know, as Massachusetts drivers, because you would think that... Putting aside all emotions, just from the fact that if this happens, not only do you have a reduction of accidents, of hit and run accidents, but your premiums would go down. 
I don't get anyone in this Commonwealth who would think like that's a bad thing. It, it just is another way that this community continues to get dehumanized when this community, particularly outside the Boston areas, places like Chelsea and Lawrence and other places, literally saved our economy during COVID. Like yeah. you would think, yeah. you would think, like give them driver's licenses. I yeah. know. I agree a hundred percent. It's about time. And it's it's not only law enforcement, it's also health healthcare professionals, insurance company, the private sector. They are all they all agree that we must grant driver's license to undocumented. And I want to add something, you know, uh we all know what what the housing situation is like here in Boston and immigrants are being pushed away to remote places where there is poor public transportation. Exactly. So this is urgent. Yeah, they're moving. They're moving outside of the city. They're moving outside of the urban centers. They're they're moving into suburbs yeah. in Massachusetts. So they have to get. I mean, I personally know people who do this, who, yeah. who actually have to drive without a license. And a lot of people. But that's the reality too. Is that they're not living. They can't afford the Boston's and the Chelsea's and the places that we're talking about. So they're moving to like outside, 15, 20 miles out. But they still have to get into the city to work. Right. Right. Um, just a note that 16 states in the District of Columbia already allow this um, and that mass budget estimated that between 45,000 and 85,000 drivers would obtain a license within the first three years if the bill passed. So that means that's how many people are on the road right now with no. I, I, you know what <laughs> scares me? But I, I, just yeah. to put the other side of this, Callie, the only thing that scares me about this is is sort of the, the lack of um, trust in government services by the undocumented community. Because I think one of the things is, yes, this is a good idea, but will this, will this information ever be used for something else? You know, will you have conservative yeah. groups then sort of like ratting out people who got a license and calling up ICE and, 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 and things like that? So that's also part of it, but it, but it does speak again to how we have dehumanized the undocumented community not only nationally, but in Massachusetts. And it just needs to stop. All right. Well, people who do have driver's licenses are the delivery workers in New York City. And they have been very vocal about the terrible working conditions they had, particularly exacerbated, as you both mentioned, during the, the initial part of COVID. And so the group has been working very hard to make some changes and it finally happened. So they've gotten some now new rules in place. They're effective as of Monday, uh, January the 24th. Um, but just to let people know what it was like before, uh, and the name of the group is Los Deliverastas Unitas. I'll let you pronounce Unidas, it. Unidas, yeah. Unidas, Deliveristas okay. Unidas, right? The, the right. United Delivery Workers. So right. like, there you go. Good job, so Callie. Just, <laughs> well, so here was the issue. Here were some just specific issues. Unsafe streets, robberies and assaults, people literally taking their money. One guy was killed. Um, and here was the thing that was most puzzling and outrageous, lack of access to bathrooms. As one of the leaders pointed out, you are in a crisis uh, that is about trying to maintain um, sanitary conditions. And you don't want these drivers who are now servicing their essential workers, servicing all these people in the city to wash their hands. I mean, it was crazy. So anyway, this has changed. But I just wanted you all to talk about, in general, the circumstances for these delivery workers, many of whom are Latino, had not been great. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to to what we were talking about it, you know. While most of us stayed home, we got our food delivered. 
and we had convenience and you know we put essential workers at risk but they saved us and the fact that these conditions were continuing it's time to give back you know it's time to look at this not only morally but from a national level of what these type of workers did to keep us going as a country we've lost that i mean i actually think it needs to be this national campaign where the president of the United States has to really get on the bully pulpit and say, you know, we had health workers, but we also had essential workers like food delivery people who got us fed for the last two years. That's the part that's mind boggling for me is that we're not even thinking of this because I do think it it is an issue of representation and Mm -hmm. lack of media attention and the fact that, you know, newsrooms don't, you know, I'm talking mainstream newsrooms, not not mine, in the sense of, you know, we've we covered this story several times on Latino USA on Latino rebels. Um, I just I just think it makes, you know, as an American people, it just is logical for us to to elevate these type of um, efforts and support them. Not tip aside, not your newsroom either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you're on top not, of the not story. Not El Planeta. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you're talking right. to two people like tip aside. <laughs> El Planeta does it all the time. I mean, that's yeah. how I learned about things in Boston. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but, you know, I feel optimistic about the future. I think things are going to change little by little. Uh, it breaks my heart that I, I hear from workers that fear for example, retaliation from the companies if they choose to turn down deliveries or sign wow. off the app to go home. And we've covered this in the past. Uh, but they are organizing. They are, as I said, they are having the conversation. Uh, and I, I feel that this is it, this is going to change. And I think it's important that uh, people got to know that the face of many of the delivery workers are Latino. So I think that's a part of this conversation. And I, I actually think this is uh, what they started in New York is going to be everywhere. Um, because, exactly. you know, I, a lot of people who ordered and, and benefited do not want to be the beneficiaries of people getting mugged and not having access to bathrooms. They just don't want to, you know, you just have to know that that's going on and then you can respond as a customer um, but, and put some pressure on some of these corporations that weren't doing what they were supposed to do. To beginning, let's go to some good news. Five okay. mil- <laughs> Just because I, I need some right now. Okay. Five, five million dollar grant to Latinos for Education, a Boston-based nonprofit from Mackenzie Scott. That might not be a name people recognize. She is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos. Also helped found that that company, which is why she got half of the profits when they divorced. Um, and um, she has become quite the philanthropist. So she just granted them $5 million. I was not aware of this organization, but what does it mean? You know, aside from just a wonderful gift, um, it's very important that their mission is to get more Latino teachers into schools. This is huge uh, because, you know, it means we're going to be investing in education and a lot of the uh, uh, Latino population struggle to get access to good education opportunities. Um, so this is this is important. And also the issue of representation. If we have more teachers that look like us, this is important. They are role models. They are inspirations for everybody. So we need to keep doing this. And I, this same organization also donated for 
uh, another nonprofit in East Boston. It's mm. called um, Zoomix. And mm. they also do a great job in an immigrant community. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, when you know that Latinos are the fastest growing ethnic minority group in the United States and in Boston specifically, yeah. most of the kids in public schools are Latino. It's right. And nationally, I think the number in, in um, U.S. public schools is almost around 30 percent. But I was going to say, um, Callie, I actually interviewed Amanda Fernandez, who is the CEO oh. of Latinos for Education last year, because they are um, they are based in Boston and. And since I'm still, you know, I'm a national reporter, but based in Boston, they they kept reaching out to me. So I, I did interview them and we were talking about sort of back to school during the time of COVID. Sort of when you think about the national school population being close to 30 percent Latino and then in Boston, almost half. Those stories are not being brought up. Those challenges are not being amplified. And yes, it's an it is an issue of representation. It's an issue of understanding, you know, language learning, understanding the status where these kids come from, their economic backgrounds. You know, I always say that, you know, Latinos are, are believe in public education. You know, it, they, they, there is a tradition to this. And, you know, that comes from Latin America. And I, and it's, I think it's great. I think it's great. And I think Latinos for Education does a fabulous job. Wonderful. I'm going to squeeze in two more things. Let's talk about Encanto. Yeah. A fabulous animated movie by Disney. I want to take a listen to the song from the movie. It's called We Don't Talk About Bruno. And here it is from the Disney movie Encanto. I'm saving this movie for, you know, when I just can't take it anymore and I want to come up out of the depths um, because everybody's talked about how fabulous it is. There are many things to praise about it, uh, including the fact that it has a multicultural Latinx cast and that there is a reality based from a cultural standpoint presentation of story. Have you seen it, Tibisai? You were yelling. I have. I love it. And, and for me, as a Venezuelan, I felt so excited to see Arepas in a Disney movie mm. for the first time. You know, I never thought something like that would happen. So, so yeah. So the point is, uh, Callie, that, uh, you know, the media that we consume, especially that kids consume, uh, has a, a, a profound influence on how we see the world how we treat people. So this bad publicity that Colombia got for many years about a violent country, it's just a part of Colombia. But now I see this movie and you understand that it goes beyond that. So I'm happy to see a more accurate depiction of Colombia in this movie. And also I want to say that Encanto's soundtrack uh, is now the number uh, number one on Billboard. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Yes. It's a banger. It's a banger, as the kids say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julio, have you seen it? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I've I seen it in the background. My wife saw it, and I it's on my list. But I, it's a phenomenon. I've gotten so many texts from friends, and they're like, why haven't you seen it yet? And I'm like, I will, I will. I'm just, I, I, <laughs> I want to see it. I don't have kids in the house anymore. So there's a part of me that's like, 
you know, I, I philosophically, I'm like, can I watch a Disney movie by myself without kids? Sure. You know, you know yes, what I'm saying? Can. So, <laughs> yes, I know. I, I'm good. I'm good. I, I remember that, you know, I, I did watch The Incredibles by myself after my kids got old. Um, but I was going to say a couple of things. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno. Most popular Disney song ever. Ever. Yeah. Wow. Think about that. Right. And do you have you guys seen that little cute clip of the cute little Afro Latino boy? He's yes. Like three years yeah. Old, yeah. And he sees like a he sees oh, a, like so a, a beautiful black face on Encanto, and he's like, "Look, it's me." Oh, it's yeah. so that's, cute. That's how change happens. It, I mean, there's yeah. still so much to be done. Um, Disney needs to do like 20 Encantos moving forward. So I hope it's not just like one and done, but it just goes to prove that. The prediction is if you create things with a little bit more love and authenticity, people are going to show up for the right reasons. And Encanto has has achieved that. That's exactly right. One last good news story. The Harvard Crimson, nation's oldest college newspaper, first Hispanic president in nearly 150 year history. I'm JRV 90. You know, I, I, you know, I'm a Harvard Crimson alum. I'm JRV 90. That's my that's my tag. You know, that's you know, we go by our initials. And I actually reached out. Um, to uh, to the Raquel Coronel yeah. yes. and I said I said I, I actually reached out to Raquel uh, via Twitter and I said I'm so proud of you as a fellow Crimson alumna uh, alumnus um, it's time it's 2022 how can we help you as a journalist because I, I do I do stay in touch with the Crimson with some of the editors and I told Raquel it's like what do you need from me because this needs to happen I mean I felt when I was on the Crimson Back in the day, and this was like in the late 80s, uh, I think there was only like two of us. I was like, I was definitely the only Puerto Rican kid. Um, and I've seen much more of a diverse uh, college newspaper. Yeah, and all I have to say is, you know, it's about time. And I'm hoping that opening that door will allow it to stay open. Uh, because I was reading that, you know, 6% of, of the college newsroom in the United States are black mm-hmm. and 10% were Latino or something like that. So, so yeah, this needs to change. And I want to point out for those who may think otherwise, she got it after a five week election process and dozens of interviews. I, yeah. I should not have to say that, but in case someone is questioning qualifications, I just wanted to say, so congratulations to Raquel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both uh, for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks, Callie. <laughs> Thank you, Callie. Julio Ricardo Varela is Interim Co-Executive Director of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, and founder of Latino Rebels. Tibisai Zaya is Senior Reporter at El Planeta in Boston. Coming up, CBD seems to be in everything these days. Many are touting its potential benefits, but others hesitate to call it a cure-all. What does the science say about its uses, and how can consumers safely navigate the booming CBD market? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 